Three days before John Wesley found his heart strangely warmed during the reading of Luther's preface to the Romans at the Moravian meeting on Aldersgate Street, his younger brother Charles Wesley was converted. Charles was five years younger than John. He was born on December 18th. 1707. And like John, Charles was raised in a devout Anglican home, the son of Samuel Wesley, who was the rector in Epworth, England, and his wife, Susanna. Charles was exceptionally bright. He excelled in school, and in 1726, he entered into Oxford University, where his brother John was already a tutor and eventually a lecturer in Lincoln College. And together, John and Charles, very dismayed by what they saw among the students, many of whom were training for the ministry at Oxford University, they formed a society for those students and faculty who wished to be serious Christians, devoted to study and meditation and fasting and prayer and ministry to the poor and to the prisons. These Methodists became famous for their rigorous discipline and their ascetic lifestyle, which I described several weeks ago when I related to you the story of John Wesley. George Whitfield, who was one of the members of this holy club, as they were derisively known around the Oxford campus, looking back, he said, quote, Never did persons strive more earnestly to enter in at the straight gate. Both John and Charles imagined that they would spend their careers at Oxford in the halls of academia, but in 1735, General James Oglethorpe, the founder of the Georgia Colony, asked them if they would come to Georgia in order to minister to the 1,000 or so English settlers who were there and to evangelize the Native Americans. And so both John and Charles eagerly accepted thinking that such a daring mission for the cause of Christ would surely bring them nearer to the salvation of their own souls. On the voyage, both John and Charles met for the very first time Moravian missionaries. And for the very first time, they were confronted with the evangelical faith of these German pietists. Charles's time in Georgia was just as disastrous as was John's. It was just much shorter. He immediately found himself in conflict both with the authorities and the inhabitants of the colony, and he fought against constant illness. Mercifully, Oglethorpe sent Charles home back to England after only six months, and Charles was not at all sad to leave. Back in England, Charles came under the influence of two evangelicals. The first was his old friend George Whitfield, who in the time since they had last met, had experienced conversion. And the second was Peter Bowler, a German Moravian whom Charles was tutoring in English. When John returned to England in January of 1738, he and Charles began regularly attending the Fetter Lane Society meetings in London where Bowler would be teaching week by week the evangelical gospel. At one point, Bowler pulled Charles aside and he asked him, Do you hope to be saved? To which Charles replied, I do. Well, for what reason do you hope it? Asked Bowler. Because I have used my best endeavors to serve God, said Charles. At this, 
Peter Bowler shook his head and said no more. And Charles was hurt by his friend's response, writing in his journal, What? Are not my endeavors sufficient ground of hope? Would he rob me of my endeavors? I have nothing else to trust to. Well, due in large measure to the conversations with Bowler, both John and Charles began in 1738 an intense search for a true evangelical faith. And it was during a period of sickness that Charles was visited again by Peter Bowler. And following this visit, Charles records, I immediately thought it might be that I should again consider Bowler's doctrine of faith and examine myself whether I was in the faith. And if not, never ceasing seeking after it until I obtained it. Soon thereafter, Charles found a copy of Luther's commentary on the Galatians. He proceeded to read to the end of the second chapter, writing that he labored, waited, and prayed to feel him who loved me and gave himself for me. Which, of course, are Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. On May 21st, 1738, Pentecost Sunday, Charles Wesley found that for which he sought. His biographer, Arnold Dallimore, records, I waked, he wrote, in hopes and expectation of his coming. He heard someone speaking downstairs and he said, I hoped it might be Christ indeed. Bray, who was the friend in whose home he was staying, then read to him from Psalm 32, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord imputeth no sin. And although he says that at first, I felt a violent opposition and reluctance to believe. He goes on to report, yet still the Spirit of God strove with my own evil spirit till by degrees he chased away the darkness of my unbelief and I found myself convinced I knew not how nor when and immediately fell into intercession. Soon thereafter, Charles composed one of hundreds of hymns that he would write during his life. We've sung or we're going to sing four of them this morning, and in a sense, all of the hymns that we've sung this morning are either directly or indirectly related to Charles Wesley's influence. But in this hymn, which he wrote just days after his conversion, originally titled Free Grace, but has come down to us in our hymnals as And Can It Be, Charles celebrates that fulfillment of his earnest desire to feel Not just to know, to feel him who loved me and gave himself for me. The first verse goes like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me to him, for him, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me. That's what he had wanted to feel. He'd wanted to know, not just with his head, but to be convinced in his heart that God's amazing love that he read about in scriptures, that he saw Paul exulting in, in Galatians 2.20, was not just for Paul, and not just for Peter Bowler, and not just for George Whitfield, and not just for others, but also for him. Amazing love is what he sought, and amazing love is what he found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Romans 5.1 begins a new section of Paul's letter. Yet what he writes is intimately related to what has come before, as evidenced by the very first word there, verse 1, the word, therefore. In other words, Romans 5.1 introduces a conclusion or an implication drawn from what has previously been established. So what I want to do as we proceed to a new section of Romans is to go back and kind of get a, a brief overview of where Paul has taken us. So go back with me to Romans chapter 1. After an introductory section, which runs from verses 1 to 17, in which Paul sets forth the thesis statement of his epistle, found in verse 16, namely, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. After establishing that as the thesis statement of Romans, Paul goes on to proceed and establish the need for this justification in Romans 1.18 all the way to 3.20. He says that all men, Jew and Gentile, moral and immoral, religious and pagan, all men need to be justified by God's grace because our unrighteousness has placed all of us under God's wrath because of the inherent corruption of our hearts. We cannot justify ourselves. Then, beginning in 321, Paul explains the way of justification. And this runs all the way to the end of chapter 4. First, he establishes the grounds of our justification. In verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3, God's justifying righteousness comes to us from outside of us, apart from the law, by grace, through the redemption which is wrought by Christ in his death on the cross. Then, establishing the grounds, Paul moves to the means of our justification. How, how do we actually receive this justification? He begins in verse 27 of chapter 3, that it is by faith alone, apart from works. So now, now that Paul has established that justification by faith and life by the Spirit is the theme of the letter, now that he's established the need for justification, and now that he's established the way of justification, Paul now, in chapters 5 to 8, proceeds to unpack the results of this justification. The question he's concerned with now is, what changes in the heart and the life of one who has been justified by grace through faith in Christ? And the answer, as we'll come to find out in chapters 5 to 8, is everything. Everything changes. Nothing remains the same. Now, not everything changes immediately. Not everything changes all at once. Some changes occur gradually over time. That's going to be the focus of chapter 7, which deals with the believer's ongoing battle against indwelling sin. But even then, even in the midst of that battle, a fundamental change in our relationship to sin has begun in justification. That's why Paul's letter could not have ended with that climactic declaration in Romans 4, 24 and 25 that Christ was delivered over for our trespasses and He was raised for our justification. 
Justification is not the end of the Christian life. It's the beginning of the Christian life. Paul did not say in Romans 1.17 that the gospel declares that the righteous shall die by faith. He said that the gospel is that the righteous shall live by faith. And the life that they live by faith is radically different than the life that they lived before. But before Paul could talk about the work of God inside us, he had to deal with the work of God outside of us. Because before our lives can change, sanctification, our status before God must change, justification. We dare not reverse that order and make the fatal error of thinking that sanctification comes before and causes justification. That is a dreadfully miserable way to live, and it won't work, as Charles Wesley found out. Justification is the foundation of our sanctification. It all starts here. And that's why Paul begins this new section with the words, therefore, having been justified. In other words, nothing in chapters 5 to 8 are going to be true of you until what he has said in chapters 1 to 4 are true of you. But now what? Having been justified by faith, what happens? This is the concern of this morning's text, and it's the concern of the next four chapters. So today we're going to look at verses 1 to 5, and we're going to highlight five benefits of being justified by faith. Five changes which come to those who have been justified freely by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The first benefit which accrues to the justified believer is peace with God. And the first change which the justified believer experiences is a change in his relation. To God. Look with me at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes in evangelistic conversations, we, we can speak incautiously and we can ask people, do you have a personal relationship with God? Or do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Technically, although I know what we mean when we say that, And I've said it too. But technically that question is absurd. Because everyone has a relationship with God. And because we are persons, everyone's relationship with God is by definition a personal relationship. There is not a soul on earth who is not related to God in one way or the other. Nobody, not even the atheist who denies God's very existence, can opt out of this relationship and live in total isolation from his creator. So the question is not, do you have a relationship with God? The question is rather, is your relationship with God one of enmity or one of peace? Is it one of wrath or one of grace? Is it one of justice or one of mercy? Is it one of hostility or is it one of friendship? When Paul says that those who have been justified by faith have peace with God, he's not here speaking about the subjective feeling of peace. When Paul wants to talk about the feeling of peace, he doesn't say peace with God. He says the peace of God. 
that fills our heart and surpasses the knowledge according to Philippians 4.7. Rather, here Paul is indicating an objective change which has occurred in the sinner's relationship to God through justification, which then brings about those feelings of peace, which Paul is going to talk about in verse 5 of this text. So prior to justification, let's get this straight. Prior to justification, the sinner's relationship with God is marked by wrath and anger, by enmity and hostility. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In Romans 2.5, he says that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says in Ephesians 2, verse 1, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we are. All once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and listen, and were by nature children of wrath. By nature, you were born into this world under God's wrath in a relationship with Him of hostility and enmity and anger. We were God's enemies before justification. And the hostility went both ways. It's not that we loved God, but He was angry with us. Paul's going to say in Romans 8-7 that the mind which is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Hostile. The unbelieving mind hates the thought of God ruling over him. And it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, Paul says, it cannot. But the good news is that God loves his enemies. And he sent Christ, Romans 5.10, to die for his enemies. Now, having been justified by faith, our relationship with God has undergone a cataclysmic change. No longer are we his enemies. No longer are we the children of wrath. No longer we, are we under his judgment. At the cross, rather, Christ became God's enemy in our place. At the cross, God treated Jesus as a child of wrath. At the cross, Christ suffered God's just judgment against sinners. And now, through faith and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, we are at peace with God. We are at peace with Him, and He is at peace with us. Our war with God and God's war with us has ceased in justification. Now, like Abraham, we are God's friends. Now we are the children of promise. Now all of God's omnipotent and sovereign power works together to ensure that nothing shall ever separate us from His love again. We are at peace with God if we have been justified by faith. If you are not justified by faith, God is not for you. 
God is not your friend, and you are not God's child. Rather, you are his enemy, and his wrath abides on you, and all of his omnipotent power is directed towards seeing that you receive the justice which your sins deserve. So everything in this passage hinges upon those first few words, since we have been justified by faith. So the question that I would ask you as we begin this morning is, does that describe you? Are you one of those who have been justified by faith? Have you forsaken your own self-righteousness in order to cling to the righteousness of Christ? as your only plea in the judgment of God? Have you acknowledged your sins before God and pled His blood shed upon the cross in propitiation for your sins as your only hope of forgiveness and mercy? Have you exchanged your sin for Christ's righteousness? That is what it means to be justified. And until you are justified, you are not at peace with God. You are at war, and this is a war that you will not win. So lay down your arms. Lay down the weapons of your rebellion and accept His terms of peace through faith in Christ. The second benefit which accrues to those who have been justified by faith is access into a state of grace. The second change which the justified believer experiences then is a change in his position before God. Look at verse 2. Through him we have also, also in addition to peace, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul is using the word grace here to refer to a realm of, or sphere in which one lives before God. He's going to use the word in the very same way in the next chapter, over in Romans 6.14, when he says of those who have been justified, that sin will no longer have dominion over you because you are not under law, you are under grace. That's the sphere in which we live. So prior to justification, we lived in the realm of law. That realm where sin reigns in death. We lived under the edict, do this and you will live. But because we were sinners, we could only face the negative side of that command, namely disobey and you will die. But now through Christ, Paul says, through justification, we've received access into the realm of grace where grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life. Where the law of the land is, not do this and you will live, but Christ has done all and you share in his inheritance. The grace is where we who have been justified by faith now stand which is in the perfect tense, which means that it's a, it's a permanent position which has been infallibly secured by, by a past event, namely our justification in Christ. One of my favorite commentators on Romans is John Stott, and he brings out the meaning of this phrase beautifully. He states that the language Paul uses here evokes the imagery of either God's sanctuary or the king's audience chamber, or maybe both. 
Stott writes, justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the temple and in the palace. The perfect tenses express this. Our relationship with God, into which justification has brought us, is not sporadic, but continuous. Not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace. Like courtiers who may find themselves in and out of favor with their sovereign, or politicians who find themselves in and out of favor with the public. No, we stand in grace, for that is the nature of grace. And nothing can separate us from God's love. So through Christ, justified believers exist in a totally different realm, a totally different sphere from which they existed before. We don't live by law, trying to earn God's favor. We live by grace, knowing that we are accepted in the beloved. So words like work, wages, fear, guilt, shame, those characterize the realm of law. Words like freedom, peace, joy, assurance, confidence, rest, those characterize the realm of grace. It's the difference between going to work for a boss that you can never hope to please and coming home to a father that you could never disappoint. The first relationship is rooted in labor. The second relationship is rooted in love. So I'd ask you again, do you know this state of grace? Do you live, stand in grace? Do you know the freedom, the peace, the joy, the love that comes in this state of grace. If not, how do you come to know it? Well, what does the text say? Through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. So it comes by faith through Christ. Everything goes back to faith in Christ. Just as everything in this passage is rooted in that first phrase, since we have been justified by faith. So if you would know experientially, emotionally, the benefits of justification, if you would wake up in the morning and live your life in the freedom and the joy and the grace in which we stand, then you must press into what it means to be justified by faith in Jesus. You must daily remind yourself, I'm letting go of my own righteousness, and I'm embracing the righteousness of Christ. I'm letting go of my own sins, and I'm trusting in the blood of Christ. My sins are imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to me. This is my only hope. This is my only plea. And you need to tell that to yourself day by day until you believe it. And until you enjoy this access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Third benefit, which accrues to the justified believer, is that he receives the hope of the glory of God. And the third change which the justified believer experiences is the change in his perception, the change in his outlook. Okay? Before, 
we were justified. We saw things as they were, and it led to despair because things are very often bad. Now we see things as they will be, and it leads to hope. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, he says. So a believer is one for whom what is seen determines neither his joy nor his hope. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Unbelievers have their eyes fixed upon their present circumstances, their present trials, their present tribulations, their present problems. Consequently, their joy ebbs and flows along with those circumstances. When things are going well, they feel good. When things are going poorly, they feel despair. Not so for the justified believer. The justified believer has his eyes fixed on the glory of God, which is his hope. And this produces a steady, pervasive joy which marks their life. Because even though the world may be in flames all around me, the hope of glory remains sure and steadfast as the rising of the sun. So what is this glory of God in which we hope? Well, clearly, Paul is speaking of a future glory, not not the present glory of God, which is continuously being declared in the heavens and throughout creation, according to Psalm 19, and not, not the glory of God that was revealed in Christ's first coming, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Those are, those are present and past manifestations of God's glory. What Paul has in mind is a future revelation of God's glory that has yet to be revealed, that has yet to be unveiled, that is not presently seen, but is apprehended by hope. This coming future revelation of God's glory that sustains us through all of our trials and tribulations and produces within us an indomitable joy will occur in three phases. First, the glory of God will be revealed when the Son of Man appears, coming on the clouds with power and great glory. So the first is the coming of Christ. Second, Christ's coming in unveiled splendor will result in our being glorified with Him. For we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is, 1 John 3, 2. So the the sight of God's glory, when it is unveiled in the coming of Christ, is going to transform us into the image of that glory. And that is cause for rejoicing. But there's a third All of creation at Christ's appearing. All of creation which is now groaning under corruption and the curse will itself be set free from its bondage to corruption and itself will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Stott says that all of creation then will be suffused with its Creator's glory. And this is our hope. This is our joy. So do you have cancer? Rejoice, Paul says, because one day you're going to shine like the sun. Did your marriage fail and life not turn out how you hoped? Rejoice, says Paul, because one day you're going to dwell eternally in a creation in which every single element is suffused with the glory of God. 
This is the hope. This is the joy of the justified believer because his eyes have been lifted off of himself and off of his present circumstances and have been fixed upon the imminent glory of God to be revealed in Christ. Which leads seamlessly into the fourth benefit accruing to the justified believer, which is joy in the midst of grief. Okay, the fourth change which the justified believer experiences is a change in the source of his exaltation. So before justification, his joy was fickle because it was rooted in the pleasantness, or lack thereof, of his present circumstances. And those circumstances were ever-changing. Consequently, his joy was ever-changing. After justification, his joy is solid and steadfast, existing even in the pain of his present circumstances because it is rooted not in those circumstances, but in God's unchanging purpose to bring him to share in his own glory. So verse 3 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, if you want to feel the radical nature of what Paul says here, then you need to read what he says very carefully because it is likely that he's not saying what you think he's saying. I will bet that upon your first reading here, you read Paul as saying, not only that, but we rejoice in spite of our sufferings. But that's not what he says. If that were what he was saying, it would not be a distinct point from the last one. There'd be nothing in verse 3 that wasn't implied in verse 2, right? Because we hope in the glory of God, we can rejoice in spite of our sufferings. But what does Paul actually say? He says, not only that, not only what? Not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in spite of our sufferings, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Why on earth would we rejoice in pain? Well, it's not because we're Christian masochists who take some perverse pleasure in pain. It's rather because our sufferings are instruments in the hands of our sovereign and gracious Father to bring us into His glory. Our sufferings are, every one of them, purposeful. What makes suffering unbearable is the apparent meaninglessness of it all. But what if, what if we know that we are suffering for a purpose and that the purpose for which we are suffering is infinitely glorious, namely partaking in the infinite glory of God? Then we can endure anything and actually thank God for the sufferings that we experience without which we would not be glorified. Now, I think we can get a better understanding of how this works if we translate the word sufferings as it's usually translated in the New Testament, namely as tribulations. Because tribulations is a word which originally referred to an external pressure exerted upon an object from without, like, like a vice that just keeps turning and torquing and tightening down. Now, we don't need to wonder what tribulations Paul has in mind. He lists them like six times in his writings. But the most, the most close place in which he does, the nearest place in which he does, is Romans 8.35, where he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So I take tribulation or suffering to refer to any circumstance, turmoil, affliction, danger, distress, whether external or internal, physical or emotional or spiritual, individual, familial, or relational, which presses down upon us like a vice and threatens to crush our faith and to destroy our hope. Anything that fits in that category, Paul says, rejoice in it. Notice he doesn't say we should rejoice. He says we do rejoice. This is what justified believers do. They rejoice in their tribulations and their sufferings. But how? It all goes back to the idea of purpose. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that God's indomitable purpose in our sufferings is to make us glorious. All of those tribulations, all of those pressures pressing down upon us is going to bring forth from within us something that otherwise would not exist. It's like a weightlifter who puts himself under the the pressure of the barbell and endures the pain of exertion in order that he may bring forth from his body the the full potential of his muscle mass. Or like the distance runner who puts her lungs and her legs under the pressure of mile after mile in order to bring forth from her body the endurance of which she is capable. Or like carbon, which is which under the intense heat and pressure of the earth's crust crystallizes into a diamond. Nothing valuable, nothing glorious ever existed apart from the exertion of pressure, apart from tribulation. Likewise, then, saints are not made in comfort and ease and stasis. Saints are made under the exertion of pressure. They are made in tribulation. That is why we rejoice in our tribulations, in our sufferings, because we know that they are purposed and providentially governed by God to make us glorious. And Paul tells us the process by which this happens. He says we rejoice in our sufferings because we know what suffering accomplishes. We know its purpose. We know how it works for our glory. Works like this. Suffering or tribulation produces endurance or perseverance. Endurance produces proven character. Okay, a word which refers to the quality of being approved after it's been tested. And proven character produces hope. So having been tested, having been put in the vice of tribulation, if I have endured, if I haven't cracked under the pressure or broken under the strain, but instead have been strengthened, then I have welling up within me a new assurance, a well-grounded confidence that I am real, that I am genuine, that I am justified. 
When you have gone through a trial and you haven't given up the faith and you haven't grown embittered and you haven't turned your back on God, then you have the great assurance and the well-grounded confidence in knowing I'm real, I'm genuine, I'm authentic. I'm not like that second soil which sprang up quickly but under the heat of the sun, under the heat of sufferings and trials and tribulations just withered away. That's not me. I'm the fourth soil, the seed planted in the good soil that grew and endured and bore fruit. I thank God for my tribulations because it's how I know I'm saved. That's what he means. And that's a precious hope that comes on the other side of tribulation. And it comes only through tribulation. So don't despise your sufferings. They are gifts from a good and loving Father. So what benefits accrue to the justified believer? What changes in his life? First, he gains peace with God. There's a change in his relation to God. Second, he gains access to grace or a change in his position before God. Third, he gains the hope of glory or change in his perception of God. And fourth, he gains joy in grief or a change in the source of his exaltation in God. But there's a problem. The problem is that Paul appears to be using circular logic. He started with hope and he ends with hope. Verse 2 says that because we've been justified by faith through our Lord Jesus Christ, we now stand in grace and we rejoice in the hope of glory. He then explains that this hope of glory enables us to rejoice in our sufferings, which produces perseverance, which produces proven character, which produces hope. You see the cycle? Hope is supposed to be both the source of my endurance and the result of my endurance. And I want to say, how does that work, Paul? You tell me that I need to persevere through tribulations in order that I can have hope, but when I ask you, how am I supposed to persevere through these tribulations, you tell me, in hope. It seems like an endless cycle. I'm supposed to have hope in order that I can have hope. That, I think, is why Paul wrote verse 5 to get us off the cycle, and to place us on solid ground on which we can begin to endure sufferings. And hope does not put us to shame because, for this reason, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the reason our hope in the midst of tribulation and adversity will not put us to shame, the reason we can be assured that our sufferings won't turn out to be purposeless pain or meaningless misery is because God pours out within our hearts a first and foundational hope on which we can stand. The hope of the glory of God with which we began does not begin with us. It begins with God. Because when we are justified, we also receive the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit begins to pour out within our hearts the assurance of God's love for us. God wants His children to have assurance. 
He wants us to have the assurance of knowing that when all is said and done, we will inherit the glory of God. He wants us to live our lives not in a haze of doubt, but in the confident hope that God loves us and will keep us. But there are two great enemies which undermine that assurance. Two gnawing fears that have to be overcome. The first is the fear that we might be fake. Maybe we are the second soil. Maybe we are hypocrites. Maybe my faith is not genuine. Even though, even though I say I'm a Christian and I know the right doctrines and I belong to the church, maybe I'm not real. And that's why God sends us through tribulations in order that we would have the opportunity to see the work of grace wrought in our lives as our sufferings produce endurance and our endurance produces character and our character produces a confident and well-grounded hope that we are real, that we do possess an authentic, saving faith. But there's a second fear which undermines our assurance, and that is the fear that maybe, maybe it's not us who's not real. Maybe it's the object of our faith who isn't real. Maybe the fear is that after all the sufferings and after all the trials and all the endurance, all of it's going to be shown to have been a sham. What if the pain and the suffering really were meaningless, as is the rest of life? What if there is no overarching purpose or plan? What if God's not even real? Paul's answer to that fear is verse 5. We know that our hope will not put us to shame because God has poured out, effusively, generously poured out His love through the Holy Spirit who indwelt us when we first believed. We know that our hope will not deceive us because God has done something in us. God did not merely justify you, thereby changing your legal status. He also gave you His Holy Spirit to assure you of His love for you. In other words, Romans 5.5 appears to be speaking of the same experience as Romans 8.16, where Paul says that the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So that's the starting point for Paul. That's the ground of our initial hope, the hope of the glory of God, which then sustains us through our sufferings and through the trials and the tribulations that produces perseverance and proven character and a hope that does not disappoint. John Piper commented on this verse in this way. He said, Paul's answer is not an argument but an experience. There are arguments and Paul is willing to use them. But here, he simply says, your hope, rooted in the genuineness of your proven faith, will not disappoint you. And you can know this because the Holy Spirit has come into your life and has begun to pour the love of God experientially into your heart. This is not mainly an argument. This is mainly a personal experience of God's love flooding the heart with an immediate sense of God's reality and love. Do you know that experience? It's an experience that is shared by all Christians. And it's an experience that is shared by all who, who have the Spirit dwelling within them. 
It's experienced in different measure. It waxes and it wanes, it ebbs and it flows. But all those in whom the Spirit dwells know something of a Spirit-wrought assurance of God's love for them in Christ. And it is also an experience which is available today through the ongoing ministry of the indwelling Spirit in our lives. It's that experience that Charles Wesley lacked. It's that experience that he yearned for, that felt reality of God's personal covenant love for him. And it's that experience that I exhort you to seek today. We're going to return to this theme next week, but for now, let me say that the Spirit doesn't pour out God's love in a vacuum. You're not going to experience the effusion of spirit-wrought love by emptying your mind like some Eastern mystic. The Spirit pours out the effusion of God's love as we meditate upon the supreme demonstration of that love, namely, the death of Christ on the cross, verse 8. This is why Paul immediately turns to the death of Christ for sinners as the supreme demonstration of God's love. And he connects it to verse 5 with that word for. In other words, he's saying, and this is what all of next week is about, as you look at Christ on the cross and you see God's love demonstrated for you while you were yet a sinner, the Spirit works an effusion of God's love in your heart. So look to Christ this morning. Consider His atoning death for your sins. Meditate upon the cross as the supreme demonstration of God's love for you. And pray that the Spirit would pour out the love of God upon your heart.